smoky rooms and back porches of America right to your doorstep. Join me, Jerry Mack, for an excursion into the true American musical experience on Nothing But The Blues, Saturdays from 3 to 5 p.m., right here on WCBN-FM, Ann Arbor. Scott Living Writers, I'm T. Hetzel. Today on the program, I'm so pleased to have David Gran. Um, welcome, David. Uh, thank you for uh, having me on the show. I, uh, David, you're joining us um, from New York City um, via phone. Yes, I am. And, and uh, are, in Bro- are you in Brooklyn? You know, we, uh, we are no, I'm no longer in Brooklyn. I was in Brooklyn, and uh, we now live out in uh, a town called Mamaroneck, which is about, about 40 minutes outside the city. Oh, it sounds nice. So is that on the river? It is near Long Island Sound. Oh, oh lovely. Okay, well now we, we've we've got you on the map, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, thank you for, for being here today by phone, David. Um, before we go any further, I'll read the sh- your short bio in your book, The Devil and Sherlock Holmes, Tales of Murder, Madness, and Obsession. David Gran is a staff writer at The New Yorker and author of the number one New York Times bestseller, The Lost City of Z, which has been translated into more than 25 languages and received the Indies Choice Book Award for the best nonfiction book of 2009. He is a recipient of the George Polk Award for magazine reporting and has written for The New York Times Magazine, The Atlantic, The Washington Post, The Wall Street Journal, and The New Republic. Um... And many, um, nine of the stories in The Devil and Sherlock Holmes, those were in The New Yorker, David. Right? Yes, that's correct. Almost all the stories, except for I think uh, two were, uh, or three, uh, were from, um, were in The New Yorker, where I started working in uh, 2003. And, and this was, was it David Remnick at The New Yorker who had the idea to put these together as a book? Uh, you know, um, uh, this the D- David uh, helped um, you know shepherd the stories and really gave me the the room to write them and do them and had always encouraged me to uh, put them into a collection. And then my publisher, who published The Lost City of Z, and my editor there, who's wonderful, a man named Bill Thomas, had really suggested we call them and 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 try to put them into a collection as well. Uh, and uh, that. That finally came to fruition a couple of years ago. Because they definitely feel like um, like a strange family in this book. You know, it, was it surprising to you to see how 
how connected they were, how they could fall into these, you know, um, the murder madness and obsession and, um, and, and these, cause you, you divide it into th- to three parts, David, the book, um, each with a quote from yeah. Sherlock Holmes to yeah. start it. Is that? Yes. I mean, you know, you, I think two things happens when you, when you, look over your writing, uh, you don't tend to do that too often, but when you're putting together a collection, you're kind of forced to go back uh, and look at your material, sometimes happily, sometimes less happily so. And uh, but you, you start to see certain kind of themes begin to creep into one's work, and you start to notice them more. I mean, I think to some degree when you're writing and researching stories, especially like I do where I'm really a generalist. I don't follow a beat. Um, I haven't followed a beat for about 15 or 20 years now. Um, I really write about what interests me or what's curious or kind of fills me with wonder. And you you do start to see certain connective tissue between some of the stories. And then when I try to put them together, I also try to weave out some of the stories uh, that might not fit as well if I covered something for the presidential campaign. Uh, It didn't quite fit into the the theme of murder, madness, and obsession, although I suppose people seeking the White House probably have some obsession. Definitely, definitely. <laughs> Maybe madness, but hopefully no murder. <laughs> <laughs> Fingers crossed. Exactly. Well, David, it's it's kind of amazing then that um, for so you did do you did actually have like a responsibility to a beat at a certain point, and this. Um, but now you're you're finding sort of your own stories. It, it's how do you actually know when something grabs you? Um, because sort of the world, it could be anything. Yeah, you know, it's 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 hard to say in any kind of specific um, or, or general rule. I mean, it's so. I think there is a part of it which is more instinctive, and you can't quite explain. You know, if you, why does something appeal to you? Or it's just interesting. But often the stories begin. You know, I may see like a news brief um, in, a, in a newspaper, or I might see two sentences somewhere, or I may see something buried in a story. So, for example, I, I had read uh, a news brief that uh, members of the Aryan Brotherhood, um, one of the most ruthless prison gangs, had been arrested. It was just a couple sentences. And it said they had been arrested and they were in prison. And they had been arrested while in prison. So I thought, wow, that's so strange. You know, you're in prison and you're arrested while you're in prison. Right. Um, I thought that's the whole point of being in prison. That you, you, you don't get arrested. You, you're already taken out of commission. And so, right. you know, so in that case, that began with that kind of, that just struck me as odd and curious. And then, and then the next thing that occurred to me was, well, we all know there are prison gangs and they're all kind of part of our consciousness and we are aware of them but had anyone ever really been able to describe how do they actually work i mean how just from almost a mundane forensic standpoint how do you run a criminal operation in prison how do you run a criminal operation when you're in supermax prisons um how do you you know how does money get exchanged how do you communicate um and all these other things. So that was the question I sought to answer. And and then, you know, a story will go through several stages. And so the first stage, really, even before you commit to the story, you have to say, well, could I even tell that story? Is that even possible? Oh, can you say more about that? Yeah. So you, what you don't want to do is, you know, 
from just a practical financial standpoint as a writer, you don't want to spend, you know, six months investigating a story and then say, oh, I don't have a story. I mean, that it would, it's just not practical. So usually what I try to do is spend a, a couple weeks early, very intensively early on, trying to see if there is enough thread, if there are threads to pull. It doesn't mean you know what will fully be in the story, but is there a way to get at the material, and especially in a case with a prison gang, which is incredibly secretive and, and in fact, kills anyone who snitches. Right. And so, you know, the, so there were several steps there I had to kind of figure out. I mean, one was speaking, I spoke to the prosecutor on the case um, to see if he would cooperate and talk, and it turned out he would. So that was one big hurdle. Now, he had certain limitations on what he could share, uh, things that were, you know, still uh, of sensitive nature. Um, so there were some limitations on that front. Uh, so then I had to think of other ways in and and um, and try to find members of the gang. And in that case, uh, the hardest thing was trying to find a member of the gang who was willing to talk. And there was one man in particular who I wanted to see if he would talk because he had broken with a gang. He was once one of its highest-ranking members, a guy named Michael Thompson. And it turned out, I discovered during the research, and this is something I didn't know existed before, that there are such things as witness protection programs in prison. That essentially there are ghost prisoners who, because of security threats on their lives, are so great um, that their identities and locations are not revealed publicly, and they are kept in seclusion. And so he was someone like that. But eventually, um, so I, I couldn't find him, um, and I, that was one of the big challenges, is if could I find him, I thought, would he talk? Um, and eventually I got someone, wasn't the prosecutor, I found someone else, uh, someone in an official capacity who was willing to help me and tip me off where uh, he was, and I called the prison, and I said, my name is David Grant. Do you have a prisoner there named Michael Thompson? I'd like to find a way to send him a letter. And they quickly said, we don't have anybody here by that name. And then I got a call back about a half an hour later from the person who had been helping me and said they think you're a sleeper agent, uh, meaning you're someone trying to come in under disguise to kill him, and they are now trying to move him out of the prison. Oh, jeez. And so the this official explained to the prison, uh, again, it was a person of, 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 of um, some authority, uh, that, that I really was a reporter and that was not the case. Uh, and then because of that and because of the help of that person, I was able to get a letter to Michael Thompson, and he eventually said, why don't you come meet with me? So I then had the prosecutor and I had you know, a person who had spent years in the gang, had murdered several people as a member of the gang, um, and has was their lead uh, ranking defector. Um, and he and, was already a ghost prisoner, so what else did he have to lose, really? Exactly, and he, you know, I think he had broken with the gang and, and felt very strongly about why he broke with oh. the gang. Mm-hmm. And so uh, he, he was, he was, and he also, I mean, he was, this was this was not an ordinary individual. This was a fairly fearless uh, individual. Uh, you know, somebody who, when I went to meet him, described the way he trained to kill someone uh, when he was an early member of the gang, and the way they would read medical textbooks um, to be more efficient as assassins. So, this was not. Uh, you know, he had more death threats on him than anyone in prison, but he was not a regular, ordinary uh, prisoner who was 
um, you know, ordinary in the sense that you and I might think of. When you went, so when you're, so here it seems like you were seeing what pieces of this story would come together before you know you're all in. Yeah, David. that's correct. And so what else is happening? Like, are you able now at this point to, to be following these threads or to, because even by hearing you talk about him and, and this quality is in all your pieces. Like, I mean, I feel like there's a way that you, you become maybe obsessed as, as well with the per, like pursuing this and the discovery and the con- connecting these pieces. Is it that you're, only working on this story or do you have then these other pieces that you're also working on because this one you don't even know if you will be able to play it out because because it sounds so like I it's so hard to imagine so much of this interesting this 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 interesting work that you're doing and finding out and meeting with this these people and then you can put it on hold or how does that work for you yeah I mean I think um you know, I'm not as good at juggling uh, multiple things as I wish I were. Um, and especially once I start working on a story and it's going, I tend to have tunnel vision. Yes. Uh, and I, that's really all I kind of think about and focus on. So at a certain point, I become fairly lost in the story and other things really fall off. Um, in that early stages when I'm, I'm trying to develop stories, I'll sometimes try to keep a few strands uh, going because I'm not sure which one is going to work. Mm. Um, but pretty soon, you know, hopefully within a, if there's one I care about more, I'm usually following, pursuing that one much more intently and hoping that one will go. So that was certainly <laughs> the case with the Aryan Brotherhood. So I might have had a couple ideas I was thinking about and, you know, if this one failed, what one could I do? And maybe I'd placed a couple calls. But I, I was probably, in a case like this, fairly um, pretty early in locked in, especially once I realized you know, I had a couple pieces that would work. And um, and then you don't know, and you don't know what you'll find. And, and that's part of the journey of, of of reporting. And I think part of the things that makes it interesting is, you know, you really don't know. I mean, with all these stories, you try to find certain ingredients and, 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 and know there are certain threads you can pull and, 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 and pass you can follow. But you don't really know where they will end up. And that, that is part of the fun and mystery and often frustration as well because, you know, often you're, you're, these stories you can become lost and confused and, you know, you, you know, things become clear and they begin to emerge. By the time you write a story, usually the pieces are, have really begun to emerge and, or emerge enough to tell the story. And, um, but when you are in the process of reporting them and researching them, um, that's an illusion to think that they were always clear or have emerged. And hopefully one of the things I try to do in the stories is to show the journey. Um, yes. Be- because it's an illusion, you know, otherwise storytelling is an illusion. I mean, the, the, the idea that you know the end or you know A, B, C, D, and E, and F, and, and how each thing led to the other, uh, you know, life is just not that way. And, and and we're not like Sherlock Holmes. I mean, Sherlock Holmes probably could do that, but uh, but you know, the rest of us kind of muddle through life like Watson. And um, and and so you know, one of the things I hopefully, at least in some of the stories, try to do is to reveal the processes and almost be transparent about them, so that the reader can experience the journey the way I experience the journey. And I'm in a lot of the stories, but. Um, for the most part, other than maybe Velocity of Z, 
I'm really there more as a cipher, as a stand-in for the reader. And um, um, but hopefully the reader gets to kind of follow on these journeys and well, experience the twists and turns along the way. Oh, that you accomplished that, David. Let's take a short break, and we'll be right back, and we'll pick up this thread. Okay. Sounds good. Okay. Today on the program, David Gran is here. The Devil and Sherlock Holmes, Tales of Murder, Madness, and Obsession, and The Lost City of Z, A Tale of Deadly Obsession in the Amazon. I'm T. Hetzel. You've got Living Writers. We'll be right back. Welcome back. If you're just tuning in, I'm glad you did. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Today on the program, I'm speaking with David Gran. Um, David Gran is... I guess you're speaking to us from New York. <laughs> Thanks for picking the musicians for today's show, too, David. Oh, I'm happy to do it. <laughs> um, the books on the table are David's books, The Devil and Sherlock Holmes and The Lost City of Z. Um, I've got the paperback vintage books copies, so thanks to Alex Houston um, for sending those along. Um, and David, when before we went on the air, you were saying you've got you know copies of some of the the ones because they're these books have been printed in 25 languages so you've got some of the copies there in your home office it seems like yes i have one i i, <laughs> I actually was struggling to find the american version of uh, devil and sherlock holmes but i, I had the british version here uh, uh it's kind of nice actually to see the see the covers and um, it's actually, uh, I think, one of the more exciting parts when you do a book is there's nothing more exciting when you when when the book suddenly shows up. I hope that always exists. And I read a lot of books electronically now, but there's still no there's no greater thrill as an author to see somehow this this thing, this solid object that uh, kind of emerge. Yes, this artifact in the world, and then to also know that it's in other parts of the world. Yes, yes, and 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 it's nice because you get that you get the kind of sometimes the, the you know the thrill gets to repeat itself. But uh, right. and, and another it's also, book, <laughs> also kind of interesting, um, you know, just to see how the covers end up kind of reflecting different cultures and the how they choose the pictures and how, kind of how they, especially with the Lost City Z, you know, kind of how they try to emphasize the Amazon as a place or not. So um, it, it's kind of a nice window in a way. And with the the British version of that, maybe there's a particular also interest there because of Percy Fawcett. Yes, um, yes, and 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 they did kind of you know it was interesting that the British cover um, for the Lost City. You see, they very much um, drew on the kind of Victorian mm. pulp adventure stories that have been a part of uh, Percy Fawcett 
who was the main character in the book, who disappeared in the Amazon in the 1920s, uh, looking for this lost city, uh, with his son and, and his son's best friend, and and so they very much drew on the covers that were kind of the uh, prototypes of the kind of books that that um, Fawcett himself had read as a child and kind of inspired him. That's that's actually wonderful. I'll have to look that up and see if I can find the cover online then too. <laughs> um, David, you were saying before the break um, about how you're you're taking the reader on the journey with you, mm-hmm. and um, I'm so glad you you mentioned that because I feel like that's that's what you you do that so well in all these stories. It's even um, thinking about how you introduce these people there as you know, they're, they become characters, right? Even though they're, they're real people. Um, and, and how you introduce them to the readers, it seems to me is how you're, you're remembering how you first meet them. And so they're becoming, uh, more complicated and, and layers of them as the, the piece proceeds, just, you know, just as if, um, you are meeting them in real life. Yes. No. I think I like you know. Um, and sometimes you 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 know the you know the stories will take turns, and and the reflection of those turns are the reflections of kind of new information coming in, or more time spending time with someone, um, and suddenly they reveal themselves in a new way, um, and you kind of want to capture that. Sometimes the stories are um, historical, or, or historical, or, or they have a they they trace a period of time and. Uh, sometimes the stories may take a dramatic turn, and the probably the most um, distinct example of that in *The Devil and Sherlock Holmes* is the story about Cameron Todd Willingham. And Cameron Todd Willingham uh, was a man, uh, a young man from Texas, kind of a troubled kid, and used drugs and hit his wife, and was kind of, you know, not a particularly. Um, uh, certainly was not a, uh, a, a noble citizen. And um, then one day uh, was found standing outside his porch, and his house was on fire, and he screamed, my babies are going, burning up, my babies are burning up. And the fire department came, and they put out the fire, and very tragically, uh, his three babies uh, died. His wife was not in the house at the time. And he ends up getting tried, um, and uh, arson experts of the day kind of came in and they looked around the house and they found all these various patterns. They found something called praise glass, which is like a fracturing in the glass. It looks like sometimes like if a pebble were to hit a car windshield, kind of that kind of pattern. Um, And they had been trained to believe that if you see crazed glass, it meant that the heat had accelerated very quickly. That only happened because some kind of accelerant had been spilled on the floor, meaning gasoline or lighter fluid. Uh, They found what they believe were puddle patterns on the burned floor, which again meant that someone had poured an accelerant, which meant them to believe that the fire had been artificially set. And if it was artificially set, if it was set by a human being, uh, not artificially set, but if it was right. set by a person, um, not by natural cause or accidental cause, um, but intentionally, um, then the only person who could have done it was, was Cameron Todd Willingham. He was tried and within an hour was found guilty and was condemned to death. And in fact, in uh, he is eventually put to death in the early uh, 2000s. Uh, about a decade after he had been convicted. And David, this is the like the first thoroughly documented execution of an innocent man. Then yeah. trial by fire. This that's essay. correct. And and the and that story really takes a dramatic turn because the first, you know, it's probably a 
10, 20,000 word story or 18,000 word story. And the first half of it really just lays out the case against Cameron Todd Willingham and leads you to believe he has to be guilty. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then at a certain point, the case begins to crack. And then piece by piece, you start to see how the case was based on, um, you know, just sandcastles, and, and they begin to collapse, and the, and the case against somebody and caves in, and you realize there's just been an, an extraordinary atrocity committed against this man. Um, he was clearly wrongfully convicted, and um, I think the overwhelming evidence indicates he was innocent. And um, um, But it's and, not as if you're, like, as you're telling the, as you're as you're writing this piece, David, it's not as if you're withholding information from the reader in order to sort of manipulate someone's experience, because I think how you choose to do it is because you're doing it in the chronology of events. That's right. I mean, I think that's right. So so to me, um, you know, because people sometimes say, 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 well, you know, are you manipulating the reader by by withholding information or by changing our perception suddenly? And and you know, my argument is actually just the opposite, Mm -hmm. that I'm actually trying to show how the story unfolded at the time and to show the way people saw things at the time so that you could understand why those characters did and saw what they did. And even a priest. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 and if you, if you like, the world is very messy, and yeah. reporting is very messy, and a lot of the stories I write about deal with misperceptions or the fragility of our perceptions. And the way to be most honest and true is to show how that transpires. And so in a story like that, you really want to see how the story unfolds and to see the series of misperceptions and why these people reach these conclusions. So you're really just telling the story chronologically, showing what the people at the time saw. And it's only over time where you begin to realize all the cracks in their perceptions and also my perceptions and also the reader's perceptions because we all came to the story in a similar place, looking at the case of this man's guilt and the case against him, and then we slowly begin to see how it cracks. And in this particular, in Trial by Fire, David, you also introduce, well, not, well, she's definitely part of the story, Elizabeth Gilbert, um, and she's another person then that we see. So we've got your narrative voice and, and uh, unfold like with the story pieces unfolding. And then you have her as a, a character where we see um, that like sort of, sort of her disbelief, like how she gets matched with this person and then how by that she wants to be there because he needs her there at the execution. And then you then subsequently not able, but, but so there's a, a way that sh- her voice then you see her transformation with the the case yeah. as well. Often with, this, with some of the stories, um, you know, I think in an ideal way, um, y- you know, y- you find a lot of the stories I have have some elements of mystery in them, and usually there is somebody who is thrust into the role of being a detective, and <laughs> the the most interesting detectives to me are the ones who are usually not professional detectives. They are the ones who um, become detectives out of circumstance. And Elizabeth Gilbert 
is is an example of that. I mean, this was this woman who kind of met Cameron Todd Willingham as a pen pal, writing, communicating with him. Uh, when she first met him, was convinced of his guilt, um, and then developed a relationship with him, a, a friendship with him. And they communicate a lot, and she goes to see him. And then at a certain point, just out of curiosity, she assumes he's guilty, but she goes and starts to kind of pick a little bit into the case. And she starts to see holes in the case, and um, and, and she begins to go through a, a gradual transformation as well. And so she, in a way, is a vehicle for showing that, and she is someone who tried to champion his case and actually tried to save his life, and uh, sadly was not uh, able to. But um, she's a really, uh, of all the people I've written about, is just an extraordinary woman um, shortly before uh, Cameron Todd uh, Willingham was executed. Um, she was in a terrible car accident and um, and was paralyzed. And uh, she's one of the more, most determined individuals uh, I've ever I've ever met. And uh, vowed to me that she would walk again. And I haven't spoken to her for a while, but I know had made progress. And um, but just an incredibly undaunted woman. And and how in the piece you you say that she said I thought I was. Um, I was here in this story to help him like I was hit, but he's the one that's been teaching me that maybe I will have the, the patience to also come through this. Yeah, well, she, you know, it's funny because Cameron uh, Todd Willingham used to say to her, you know, if you want to understand what my life is like, you know, go stand in your kitchen and stand there for, I can't remember how many hours. And, you know, you can't do anything. And you just have to stand in a in a little box. And she would try. This is when she could still walk, but she could never do it. She said she would always get bored and go 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 get a book and go do something or leave or go for a walk. And um, but she when she was uh, uh, paralyzed, she 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 quite literally couldn't move. And uh, she was in the hospital for a long time, and 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 then was paralyzed and and incapacitated. And 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 she said that to me, which uh, which was that. You know, just just as you said that. Well, she thought she was, you know, always trying to save Cameron's life. That in many ways, he had taught her how to endure this um, uh, experience that she had been in, and that that you know, that having witnessed what he had been through, um, that she would be able to overcome this. And and David, thank you for also being a witness to put this story out in the world, so that there is there is something of him um, in the in the world. We'll, we'll take a, a short break and then we'll be right back um, for more today with David Gran. Um, you've got Living Writers on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. We'll be right back. Worms don't dance. They haven't got the balls. No matter how do you do, it's just you do that song. You go ahead, take. Knock up my door, you wanna get all excited He'd never been here before And now I'm your Appalachian heathen The original sin You ain't got my faith So best keep your belief I have waited forever to love someone I swear I heard you thank your God That time for having me come along Chickens don't fly, but they've got the wings No matter how hard they try, they bump into things They're all running around like their heads on the ground Welcome back. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. Today on the program, David Gran, 
joins us from New York. And I just you know, wanted to pick up on one point where we had left off. We were yes. talking about Cameron Todd Willingham, and earlier we talked a little bit about how you can tell stories and, and, and trying to find the threads. And sometimes on a story like a Cameron Todd Willingham, you know, the story is has such kind of moral import that you yes. pursue the story no matter what. And um doesn't matter if the characters are interesting or not. It's such an important story. Um, you need to tell it. And um, with Cameron Todd Willingham's case, that was certainly true. I would have told that story no matter what. And um, But the question also arose was, here was a subject who was deceased. By the time I started reporting the yeah. story, he had already been put to death. And so you struggle to say, well, how can I get this person's voice? And so one of the things you do is you try to find other people um, who can help shed light and cast light on them. So uh, certainly um, uh, you, you, you speak to his family and other people he knew, and, um, and you speak to Elizabeth and, and other people like that who can help bring him to life. But one of the things I found was that he had written letters, um, and I tracked down many of the people he had regularly corresponded with, and they had kept letters. And they ended up sharing those letters with me, and in many ways, and I, even his diary, uh, sometimes mm-hmm. we almost keep like a daily diary journal. And um, and in a way, I it was a way to reveal his character in a way, probably in speaking to him, um, you know, was in, in many ways more detailed and, and, and more raw uh, because there was no consciousness. He wasn't, especially with the diary, he wasn't writing to a person. He was just compiling his thoughts while he was there as they were happening. Um, and so he wasn't self-conscious of, of, of an interviewing process. Um, and so that, that was a real fortuity that came about in that story. I did not expect that I would have done the story anyways. Um, but getting those letters really gave me insights into his character and really let me describe much more vividly, much more in much more raw detail uh, and emotionally uh, what his life had been like. And and then when the story was printed, David, um, did you hear back from Elizabeth Gilbert or his family? Um, because then I wonder, do then people say, well, you never, you know, you never met him, but I hear him here. Yeah. I mean, I, um, yeah, I certainly speak to, spoke to the people and I, I tend, I'm a reporter who tends to go over material with people. Um, I, I know a lot of reporters don't do that. I, I don't change information or material um, just because someone doesn't like it, but I go over stuff with people to make sure it's accurate or to deepen it. And um, so people like Elizabeth and his family or even the prosecutors or the arson investigators, wherever they intersected with the story I had gone over stuff with them um, and made sure everything was accurate and correct. So they had some sense. But I think for the family uh, in particular, and for Elizabeth, I think it was sometimes which happens when people, especially something so painful, um, you know, I think it can be very difficult. But uh, um, but I kept in touch with them periodically, over, uh, even since the story has come out. Well, it, uh, it seems... It just, it's the the way you write these stories, it seems like there is such a closeness and an intimacy with it. I mean, you might think, for example, with The Lost City of Z. So this is, so the, the 
all like the one story in the book length, mm-hmm. then that that would be um, you could understand maybe living with that for as long or, or the 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 characters in that um, might have that effect on you. But because these are all you know, they're these islands of stories in your life, but, but you are so close to them. It seems, it does make sense to me to hear that you, they are, they're still part of your life. Yes. Yeah. And, and, and I think, you know, um, you know, I write tough stories. I mean, I expose wrongdoings. I, you know, often say things that, you know, or uncover truths that are unpleasant for people. But I also always try to be um, re- as respectful as possible in the in the telling of the process. And you know, a lot of these people give me their trust, and um, and I spend a lot of time with them. And I'm someone who goes back to people multiple times. Um, you know, I, I I don't you know want to have an interview with someone in a hotel for restaurant or something for half an hour and then move on that that that's the the process is much more uh intrusive and um and and so a lot of these people you know they give a lot in terms of in terms of sharing with me and and taking the time and um uh and that's and and sometimes you feel you know i think in a case like the willingham you do feel a certain emotional weight or burden in in how you um, execute that that responsibility in terms of telling these people's stories and getting it right, especially something uh, that's so fraught like that. And can I ask you about um, the the giant squid? Sure. Uh, <laughs> um, because I think this would talking about spending some time with someone and also where they're sort of being very open about Steve O'Shea, a marine biologist in New Zealand, very open about uh, an obsession. Um, and But a scientist, um, right, with a professional reputation. And then how to tell the story. Mm, and let me see how to ask this question. <laughs> um, because I think uh, after reading your essay, I also happened to see something maybe on the Discovery Channel where he was involved with another search. Mm-hmm. And um, and there's a way, because there is a certain like quirkiness maybe or, or mm-hmm. uh, to, to his character. Yeah. So so how do you, maybe this is what you're talking about being, because like, you're respectful. Um, but yes, you're also talking about you know, some of like, why in the world am I out in this boat, this boat in this storm? You know, can you tell us a little bit about that, David? Yeah, you know, Shay, uh, who I, who I, uh, you know, is was um, by far, you know, one of the more eccentric characters I ever wrote about. I mean, he showed up at the airport to pick me up, and he told me he'd been there the day before, and he got the day wrong, and he smells the cigarettes, and he's carrying a little butterfly like net catcher over his shoulder, and would then drive on the highway, and he suddenly pulls over, and suddenly, without really any explanation, and he runs out into the ocean to start catching some sort of fish, and then he gets back in the car, and he says, you know, I need this bait. And he, we go to his office, and he's trying to grow little baby squid to keep them alive. Right. Um, and it, it, it turns out that you know, everyone at that point, no, now at this point, people have witnessed a giant squid, but at that point, no one had witnessed one alive or captured one alive. And people only knew they existed because part out of folklore, but also dead ones have been seen floating. 
And there are creatures that have eyes the size of hood caps. They have stretchy tentacles, uh, they can, long as a school bus. Um, <laughs> some stretch that even measured up to 60 feet. Um, and so they're just this kind of enormously uh, complex animal that had never actually been witnessed alive, at least were documented alive, and mostly was known to folklore. And, um, you know, you can read about it described in Melville, Melville's book. We also knew they existed because you could sometimes see the burn marks on uh, whales where they had fought, oh, and you could see their scorching uh, tentacle marks across the front of them. So they knew they existed, but no one had caught them. And so Shea came up with this idea where everyone else, some people had tried to, you know, put a harpoon with a camera on a whale and hopefully that would take them to this giant squid or some went down in submersibles, some went down in cages. Um, and, and O'Shea came up with this idea, which was, I'm going to try to catch a baby and grow it in captivity. And his theory, while kind of kooky, actually made a certain kind of intellectual sense, which was that squid, like many other animals, hatch a lot of babies, um, so there would be more of them in the spawning season to catch and he said they would be they wouldn't be able to swim and they wouldn't be as deep in the water column uh so he was practicing trying to grow squid alive now if you think about this you've probably never seen squid in an aquarium and the reason is that squid uh when you put them in a tank tend to commit suicide and eat each other and uh they're really really uh hard to hold in captivity and shay had had developed and grown squid in captivity longer than any other human being had or any other scientist. Uh, so we eventually went out there, and he had um, uh, to, to try to catch a baby and grow it. And um, this was a, a, an example of a story where I think when you begin these stories, you, you sometimes, like anybody, you think, oh, okay, well, this is what the story will be, or this is where the story is going to go. And I, I had this vision of us, a Hollywood vision of this story, which is <laughs> I go out with him, we're going to capture a baby, it's going to be so dramatic, we're going to bring it back, we're going to grow it. And that was the way I sold it to my editors and read Nick at The New Yorker. Um, so I get out there, and the first thing I discover is that O'Shea doesn't have a lot of money, and I had imagined some Jack Cousteau-like vessel, <laughs> and instead he's got this little skiff only you know under 20 feet the next thing i discover is his crew is just me and his graduate student who gets seasick <laughs> and then the final thing i learned is he talks to me he says you know there's a bit of a cyclone coming our way um <laughs> and we end up going out because you know i thought we'd wait till the cyclone to pass but Boucher said you could only go at a certain time of the year and that's the only time the squid will spawn if we don't go now we'll miss it um and then the other thing i discovered is you could only really hunt for the squid at night, I guess, because uh, baby squid, I guess that's when they rise in the water column. So I'll make the story a little bit short, but the, but, <laughs> no, okay. but the bottom line is we go out of this little boat, and um, at one point, um, you know, he, he says to me, uh, we start heading out, and it's at night, and we're heading out in a cyclone. All the streets <laughs> are shut down. It's a national emergency across the country, and we're going out in this little skiff, and so I'm looking ahead, and I see a huge wall of stuff and uh, we start to aim through the chute and on either side of us are rocks 
and I see this huge wall in front of us. I take out a flashlight, and I look at it, and it's about a 20-foot wave in front of us. And then I look behind us, and there's another wall, and it's about a 20-foot wave behind us. And we are going through this little chute. Uh, and O'Shea looks at me with a little bit of glint of devilish madness, and he says, you won't find this in New York, will you, mate? <laughs> and, um, and, and, and there was a moment there where I did think my captain was out of his, out of his mind. Um, and am and, I yeah. out of my mind to be here with him, right? <laughs> Yeah. And and so and the, and the thing that happened in that story is basically everything went wrong. Everything we did went wrong. You know, it was a hurricane. We were out there for nights. We never found it. And finally, one night, um, we, uh, you know, we've been up for nights. I mean, it was just backbreaking work. And I, he put me to work. And there wasn't enough of us. I was working. And uh, and one night we're, we, we pull up one of the nets that he had designed to capture the baby, and we think we see it. And we have to transfer it to another tank. And then suddenly as we're transferring it, he suddenly says, where is it? And, you know, we were so tired and it was wavy, and for whatever reasons, it was suddenly gone. And I'm not convinced it ever existed, but I think it did exist, and we lost it. And and O'Shea had a look of despair on his face like I've never seen before. And at that point, I had a horribly selfish thought um, that had nothing to do with O'Shea. And my selfish thought was that I had, uh, that, you know, my story was a disaster. And how would I ever tell a story? We've been out there. I've been in New Zealand for three weeks, and we've been looking for this thing for ages. And then we have it. We lose it. I mean, I don't even know how you would write that scene. And the whole story I had constructed in my head or that I thought would happen had utterly collapsed at that point. Um, And it was only afterwards, uh, eventually, when I was thinking about it, and kind of let go of the story that I had envisioned. In many ways, I realized the story that had happened was far more powerful, mm. and that this really was a story about a man who had an Ahab-like obsession and had sacrificed everything, had really sacrificed everything. And this was an instance where he, he had the thing he had spent his whole life in bankrupting himself finding and then had lost it. And that scene ended up having, you know, great emotional power. Um, But it was an example to me, and I always think of that story, because it's really important in these stories to go where they take you, and often the kind of surprising or unexpected ends, the true ends, are the ones that are are the real interesting ones. but you and so you don't want to be trapped in, in a design. You kind of just have to go where these stories take you. And and somehow, and how do you make sure your blinders aren't on? You know, you, you 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 know that it is something that you always need to be aware of, mm-hmm. and you and and you need to um, you know always kind of challenge yourself. And and um, you know we're all fragile, and we're all subject to misperceptions. Um, you know, and some of them I try to show what those might be in the story, or what blind paths I might go down. Mm. Um, you know, I've worked on stories where, you know, I thought one theory, and then the other theory turned out to be true. Uh, and you know, I try to hopefully show that um, and sh- and show why you go down a certain path. I mean, when I began the Willingham story. Um, I was convinced he was guilty. I mean, uh, and so, you know, you, you, it was only over a period of time and a gradual creation of detail that you begin to um, see things differently. Did you become interested in um, the Williams story, the trial by fire, 
did that grow out of the prison? I didn't look at the dates, but the, no, the you know, Aryan prisoners? Of, um, no, okay. I've heard there have been some problems with arson science. Uh, and okay. so I started looking to one of the key parts of the Willingham story, which we didn't really mention, which is that it turned out, you know, again, one of the things, we, we, we've talked a lot about misperceptions and, and the fragility of perceptions. And, you know, we all grow up in the CSI world where we think of these kind of fantastical possibilities of seeing everything. And, and, and my image of arson scientists was always of these guys who kind of went in, or gals who went into a room and, you know, were able to kind of just interpret the fire. You know, it was almost like this mystical thing. And, and they had these kind of super perceptions and they could see what we could. And it turned out that, in fact, all the stuff they had been taught, or much of the stuff that they had been taught, was, was sheer folklore. It was just, it was, it was um, you know, not witchcraft, but it was just, it was junk science. It had no scientific basis. And there really been a revolution in arson science in the last decade that has begun to reveal that, you know, all these underpinnings and the things that they had thought they had found in the Willingham case turned out to be, um, you know, Junk. I mean, they just they they just weren't valid. They weren't validated in a laboratory. I mean, I had mentioned earlier this thing about the crazed glass, with this this kind of fracturing in the glass, and the theory of that was that you know that was caused by an accelerant and rapid heating. Well, just the opposite. Um, it's actually caused by rapid cooling. Um, people took the glass into a lab, and um, they they heated it up, heated it up, and it, they didn't get that pattern. Um, they got the pattern suddenly when they put cold water on it right. and after it was hot and it was the sudden cooling that caused the fracturing so what caused it it was the fire the fire department right exactly. <laughs> you're in a hot house the good you're guys. In a fire, and so when the firemen would come and they would shoot their fire hoses it caused this fracturing it had nothing to do with accelerant um and over and over again there are these examples of that um and so uh you know that that's an example of um you know, of, of, of misperception. In this case, you know, these people weren't bad people. I mean, they, they thought they were doing right, but um, their knowledge, their perceptions, um, and I think, you know, part of the lessons of that, too, is to not be so, um, you know, I think we can be too sure of ourselves sometimes. And I think there are stories, and some of the stories I write, I, sometimes they have an element of doubt. I mean, I, I can't even the Sherlock, the Sherlock um, you know, Holmes If there's thing. a murder and <clears throat> everything's filmed and there's multiple cameras, I mean, I suppose maybe then, um, you know, you would know precisely. But in most of these cases, you're dealing with eyewitnesses. And we now know eyewitnesses have fragility and perceptions. Often there are no eyewitnesses. Um, and so, you know, uh, there was uh, I did a story about uh, which the, the book, the collection is partly named after yes, um, the Sherlock Holmes story. The Sherlock Holmes, yes. and, and that's a, a you know kind of a crazy story about a, a, the world's greatest Sherlock Holmes scholar. Uh, he was the greatest scholar of Sherlock Holmes and Conan Doyle, and he was found mysteriously garroted in his house. Yes. And <laughs> the question was, did he commit suicide or was it murder? And all these Sherlockians, these people who were experts in Sherlock Holmes and Conan Doyle, kind of took up the case and tried to investigate it. And I pursued their investigation to try to figure out what had happened to this man. And eventually, the case and the story, slowly it peels back and you start to get a much deeper sense about what happened to him. And, 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 and it's a real tragedy. Um, and, and by the end, you know, I think you, you're pretty sure what happened, but you don't know 100%. And there was a quote 
from his sister. I love that this is how you end this piece. Yeah, that, and, I, and I'm going to paraphrase. I don't remember it exactly, but it was something to the fact of you know, you know, we have to learn to live without answers. Uh, we don't always have the answers to everything. And in fact, one of the things that so affected that Sherlock Holmes scholar, and that was the heart of that piece, was his quest to have the answers for everything. And that can drive you to madness. And I think many of the characters I read about are driven to know everything and yes, ultimately can... come up against their own limitations. Um, can... And that can have fracturing results. Like Percy Fawcett. Percy Fawcett, the, classic example of the, that, a guy who, who was a great explorer, an enormous amount of endurance, uh, really was the last of the great Victorian Edwardian and territorial explorers, uh, mapped most of the interior of the Amazon, which in the early 1900s was still really the last large blank spot on the map, about the size of the continent of the United States. He began to piece together this theory that there was a lost city, and most people thought he was mad, and he insisted upon it, and he put together all these clues, and um, and then uh, starts to gather more evidence about it. And then also um, an event happened in his life, which in many ways, um, on a larger scale, reflected this, which was World War One. Yes. He eventually leaves the Amazon to go fight in World War One, and like many British and many Europeans, saw this early on as potentially a noble cause, and, and, and then witness the, the, just the mass destruction of, of Western civilization. He was at the Battle of the Somme. He was a leader in the battle, and he watched these youths of you know, 16, 18, 19 years just run out of the trenches into machine guns. And that moment that was supposed to be, um, in many ways, a kind of... Uh, that had, Many, many had seen it as almost like a culmination of, of Western has really represented its collapse. And, and people like Percy Fawcett have really strained their notion. And his notion of this lost city at that point became more grandiose in his yes. mind. It became almost like a, a counterpoint uh, to what he had witnessed. And um, by the end, he eventually heads out into the jungle to find it. But by then, there is a tinge of madness to his quest. And David, so do you. Uh, yeah. Head out into <laughs> the jungle. Could... Hopefully, not quite as badly, but, uh, but, but and certainly uh, <laughs> in a more slovenly, portly way. But I, I did um, uh, eventually, uh, in trying to pursue the story, follow Fawcett's trail into the jungle. And um, many people had tried to follow his path over the last century. And part and of died. the story, he disappeared and... in 25, 1925. And part of the story was about his obsession, but also the obsession of so many others who had followed in his footsteps trying to figure out what had happened to him or to find this lost city, and, and, and most of them ended up dead. They disappeared or were killed, um, starved to death, died of malaria, were kidnapped by uh, tribes in the area, uh, were never seen again. And um, and yet you went, and, and you talk about these, I think you sort of say very clearly these moments where you're thinking, well, I'm not like this, but then you sort of acknowledge, or, <laughs> but what am I doing? Yes, yes. I mean, you know, I, you know, my quest was not like Fawcett's, but you know, you know, it, it was a, it was a biographical quest. I mean, it was a quest um, to some some extent to try to know everything about somebody. And you know, I spent several years on that project, and and you do become consumed with the gaps in your knowledge, and you want to know them, and so. Um, eventually I went in the jungle. I'm the least likely explorer ever. I mean, I am 
um, I have, as I would say in the business, a voice for a, for a face for radio. I mean, I'm 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 out of shape, and I you know I I, I don't hunt and I don't fish, and I'm kind of phobic, and so uh, you know the idea of me in the jungle is the last place you would ever imagine me. I mean, I never camp or anything, um, and eventually you end up there, and 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 it's a little bit. You know, people will ask me, well, you know, why'd you, why'd you end up there? And again, I think you start to get into some irrational strands where you, you, there's no kind of easy answer to the question. And it's usually, it was a bit of a process that kind of got me there. And what lengths, like, won't you, are, like, it just strikes me as, what aren't you willing to do somehow? And I know it's because you're saying there's part of you that's committed to the story, this narrative that you're you're imagining and piecing together yes yeah you you know it's it's your own you know and and you know i think you know and i think part of the misperception also is um you don't when you're pursuing something you know when Fawcett went off marching into the jungle i'm sure he had no idea that he was basically leading him and his son to their death. He did know how dangerous it was, and he was acknowledging it in his letters and in his diaries. But there is an element of blinders, and it's that question which you asked earlier, you know, blinders. And I do think, we, you know, they affect you. And, and so I think in a way when you're pursuing a story, you know, you don't think about it in those terms. You're not thinking about oh, this is risky or that. You're just really thinking of this is point A, and I want to get to point B, and I want to get to that town. How am I going to get to that town? I want to get that tribe to take me in. I need to get a guide. I need to bring gifts. How do I get there? And, and how, would, how is it feasible? And, and, and so, you know, you're very kind of, um, you, you get tunneled. You get tunneled on trying to figure out, figure out that stuff. And, and then at a certain point, you know, there are cracks and, and things dawn on you. And, and you know, in the, in, in, the, in the Percy Fawcett story, there was a point when I got separated from my guide and kind of wandering around in circles in the jungle, and, and, um, and I start to hear noises. And, 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 you know, in a very limited, small way, felt some sense of, of, of real genuine panic. And, 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 and you start to say, well, you know, what the hell are you doing? And this is just really foolish and um you know i had a wife at the time and a little kid and you really you and you indict yourself in that moment you really do you indict yourself but david i'm so i'm so glad you did go and i'm so glad you made it back and this book the lost city of z um is now the story in the world and percy fawcett somehow is is um i don't know again it's like you've almost vindicated his his dream as well. Um, thank you so much for talking with me today. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for having me on the show. And um, and hopefully one day we can talk again. Maybe when you're next in Ann Arbor. That sounds great. <laughs> um, so so David, do you mind holding the line? And I'll sure. I'll I'll be back. I'll be with you in just a second. Thank sure. you so much, everyone, um, for listening to Living Writers today on the program. David Gran, um, his book, The Lost City of Z: A Tale of Deadly Obsession in the Amazon, and. We've also been talking about The Devil and Sherlock Holmes, Tales of Murder, Madness, and Obsession. Um, thank, many thanks to Tex. Many thanks to David Grant. I'm T. Hetzel. Until next time.
This is Free Speech Radio News for Wednesday, March 27, 2013. In Los Angeles, I'm Dorian Marina. Coming up, for the second day, the Supreme Court takes on gay marriage with a challenge to the 1996 Defense of Marriage Act. African countries push for strong measures to limit the global arms trade at the UN. And we'll hear from an activist in Bahrain who describes the ongoing crackdown on protesters in the country. The injured people, they should have the access to go to the hospitals. But unfortunately, here in Bahrain, if you're injured and you'll go to the hospital, you will be arrested. Those stories and more coming up. I'm Shannon Young with the headlines for Free Speech Radio News. What is being described as the largest distributed denial-of-service attack in the history of the Internet has caused a global slowdown of Internet speed. The attack comes after anti-spam firm Spamhouse blacklisted the Dutch hosting service Cyberbunker. The speed of attacks, which began weeks ago, reached a high of 300 gigabits per second, several times what is necessary to temporarily make a secure website unavailable. In India, a government transparency body has ordered a medical research center in Bhopal to disclose information regarding drug trials conducted on survivors of the city's massive 1984 industrial gas leak, data the center has so far refused to provide. Sharia Niasi reports from Bhopal. The Central Information Commission of India has ordered Bhopal Memorial Hospital and Research Centre to hand over all information related to experimental drug trials carried on persons affected by the 1984 